We happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? podcast. I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, it is hot and sunny out. Finally, summer is here. Gotta love it. It's been beautiful out up here in Ottawa, except for today when it was raining as we record this. But in general, beautiful weather. No complaints. Well, I will tell you down here, it is hot and sunny, so no rain whatsoever. So sucks to be you. (laughs) But rain or shine, David, the podcast must go on. So let me ask you the question that we always start with. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's the 6th of May, 1527. And the streets of Rome are in chaos. An invading army is looting and pillaging, killing anyone who dares to resist. Even the Pope himself has been threatened. And now his Swiss mercenary bodyguards are fighting to get him to safety. They began the day a regiment 500 strong. Now the last 42 survivors are struggling to hold on the steps of the Vatican Basilica, as Pope Clement VII flees through a secret passage to the Castle Sant'Angelo, the last remaining bastion in the city in papal hands. David, a desperate day of fighting in the streets of Rome. So these Swiss guards, these are the guys we see on TV in the movies. They've got like the big ceremonial hats. They carry those big uh, pikes. Is that correct? They carry big halberds. They wear somewhat ridiculous looking hats to modern eyes. The precise uniform of the modern Swiss guard is not the one they would have had in 1527 in all of its details, but certainly things like their ceremonial halberds continue to exist to this day, largely because of the memorialization of this specific event, the last stand of the Swiss guard during the sack of Rome. All right, so we know who these guys are. We've seen them on TV with those ceremonial outfits, like you said. Who's the invaders, David? Who's on the other side of this fight? So that's a little bit more chaotic. The invading army was originally a Habsburg army sent by the Habsburg emperor to fight a war in Italy, primarily made up of German and Spanish soldiers, although they also recruited mercenaries from across Europe, including from Italy itself. But by this point, Discipline has effectively broken down. The army is out of control. There's Italians just joining it. Some of the Spanish members have left in disgust. It's very much almost a mob invading the city of Rome now at the beginning of May 1527. Okay, so it's very chaotic on the one side as you have this this mob of all these different nationalities somewhat representing the Habsburgs invading Rome. So, David, you've mentioned that we started with 500 Swiss guards. Now we're down to the last 42. Indeed. And so tell us about this place that they choose to make their last stand, David, because that's always crucial in these military confrontations is, is what is the terrain like for the smaller force, these 42 men trying to hold off the mob? So they're holding on, as I've said, the famous steps of the Vatican Basilica, 
large, dramatic church building behind him, behind them. The steps are steep. That's important. It's going to be a major problem for any attackers going upwards. So a good choice by the Swiss Guard in that sense, David. And the other major advantage that the Swiss Guard have is that they're following a set plan. If they can get the Pope through the secret passage to the Castel Sant'Angelo, which is being held by loyal troops, then at least for the day, they can simply secure the Bastion, which is effectively a separate castle from the rest of the Roman defenses. Even today, it's largely unconnected from the walls of the Vatican City and therefore very hard for anyone outside of it to access. So if they can get the Pope through the secret passage and they have the advantage, it's a narrowing series of from the steps into the basilica, into the secret passage. Each step is narrower than the previous one. Then they'll have effectively succeeded in their first mission, getting the Pope out of this chaotic situation alive. How did it come to this, David? How did we get to this point where the Pope is literally fleeing for his life through a tiny secret passage? Right. Maybe the best place to start in giving you some of the context of what's going on in the 1520s in Italy is in France with a man named Charles III, Duke of Bourbon. So who was this Charles III, David? So he's a French nobleman, as I've already said, the Duke of Bourbon, one of the most senior nobles in France. He's an experienced military leader. He's fought in Italy before. It's a common site of wars in the, in the period, simply because it's contested between France on the one hand and the Habsburg Empire, based primarily in Germany, on the other. And he was previously a loyal soldier of the French king. But at the same time, he's having increasing conflicts with Francis I of France, who at this point is the king of France. And in 1521, those conflicts start to escalate. You see, Charles's wife dies, and he expects to inherit her property thanks to her will. But the king of France decides instead to grant it to her closest living relative, which would be her aunt, who is also the mother of the king of France. So you can see why he made that decision. These family things always get complicated in these time periods, don't they, David? They do. But in this case, the consequences are very simple. Charles feels like Francis has betrayed him by taking these lands, which he thinks are rightfully his. And so he decides that it's time for an open split, time for him to try and get what he views as his rightful property by force. But of course, as a duke, even though he's a powerful and well-connected nobleman in France, he's going to need help to take on the actual king. So he sends a letter to Emperor Charles V, who is the Habsburg emperor, who, as I've already said, has been at war with the French off and on for years, offering to ally with the Habsburgs in order to get these lands that he thinks he's owed in order to, let's say, reshape French politics. Wow, David, the king must have really pissed off 
Duke Charles III here as he is now going to join forces with the Habsburgs, the enemies of France, to fight against his own king. What a turn here, David. And do the Habsburgs get on board with this plan? So the Habsburgs are excited by the idea, but they want more allies before they start a war with France. So they start sending secret letters to King Henry VIII of England, who's also interested but not quite on board. And while they're trying to do these negotiations between Emperor Charles V of the Habsburgs, Duke Charles III of Bourbon, and Henry VIII of England, the French court discovers what's going on. And needless to say, Francis, King Francis of France, is very unhappy. Yeah, I would say so, David. You find out one of your dukes is plotting to overthrow you with your worst enemy. That is not a good feeling. Are they able to strike first, the French, to preempt this alliance that is forming between the Duke of Bourbon, the Habsburgs, and the English? So the French attempt to arrest the Duke of Bourbon. He successfully flees to the Habsburg lands in Germany. The French demand that the Habsburgs turn him over. The Habsburgs refuse. And now it's going to be a war. A war between the French and the Habsburgs. All right, David, this is all making perfect sense here. This Duke has created this problem between the Habsburgs and the French, who didn't like each other anyways. But we started off in Rome, in Italy. So how do the Italians get dragged into this war that's about to happen? So there's already a connection between wars between the Habsburgs and the French ending up in Italy, since both of them claim some territory in the northern part of the Italian peninsula. I should mention here that this is 1527. It's well before Italy has been unified into one country. Instead, it's largely a patchwork of city-states like the Republic of Venice or the Republic of Florence or the Papal States, including Rome. So these smaller countries have a hard time defending themselves against these bigger players. And both France and the Habsburgs have tried to take large portions of northern Italy and have fought wars there before. So the Italians, when they hear that there's about to be a war between the Habsburgs and the French, are immediately worried that it's going to be fought, at least partly, over their territory. And the Pope, in particular, as the secular leader of the Papal States, has a bunch of problems with the Habsburgs, who he views as encroaching on his territory on his prerogatives. So he reaches out to Francis, offering an alliance preemptively before the fighting reaches Italy. He wants a firm alliance with Francis against the Habsburgs to help him defend his own territory. All right, David. So this is Clement VII, who at the beginning of this podcast was fleeing for his life. But this is earlier, before the war, and he's going to ally with the French against the Habsburgs, who are joined by the Duke of Bourbon or the former Duke of Bourbon who has had to flee into their territory. How does the war play out, David? So not well for France, especially initially. The French attempt to get Henry VIII to join them. And I know that he was just about to join the Habsburgs like a minute ago. But anyway, Henry VIII, David, not well known for making up his mind and sticking to one thing. He is not. So 
They attempt to get him to join them. He's interested. They decide to have a big alliance-making event to be known as the League of Cognac uh, between the Pope, King Francis of France, and King Henry VIII of England. But Henry gets offended by the fact that they refuse to hold the signing, the treaty signing, in England because King Francis feels that would take him too far away from his responsibilities in Paris. Suddenly the treaty's off. This messes up the French dispositions. A year later, Henry wants the treaty back, actually, but that's not really relevant here. The Habsburgs strike quickly, take advantage of the French being distracted by their diplomatic maneuvers, and gain a bunch of early military victories. The fighting starts to get concentrated around Flanders and modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands. And while this is going on, Emperor Charles V, the Habsburg Emperor, decides to send Charles III, the Duke of Bourbon, with a German and Spanish army into Italy to keep the Pope tied up, tied down, prevent him from having an effect on the war. All right, David, so this war has... Moved quicker than the French thought, their alliance with the English isn't coming together, and now they are bogged down in a war with the Habsburgs and the Duke of Bourbon, this spurned lord who wanted some land from the French. It gets complicated, but he doesn't get it. He's aligned with the Habsburgs now, and he's leading this army into Italy which is going to become an unruly mob, David, leading up to the 6th of May, 1527. Is that correct? Yes. Are there any other major milestones we need to take note of before we get to the 6th of May? No, but perhaps I should just take a moment to discuss this army. So you've got Charles III commanding it. It's mostly a mercenary army. There's not a lot of professional troops in Europe at this point. Long service troops are expensive, and in the early 1500s, with modern taxation being still a new idea, very few countries can afford to have big standing armies. So you have a large number of mercenaries. Many of them are from Germany. Many of them are followers of this new, bold, and exciting priest. His name is Martin Luther, and he has a bunch of ideas about how the Catholic Church is corrupt, and you should have a more personal relationship with God. That's important because the attitude of the Lutherans in the army towards the Pope is, let's say, a little bit more radical than the Italians are expecting. So these German soldiers, David, mercenaries though they may be, because they're following the ideas of Martin Luther, they have an actual grievance with the Pope that the Italians maybe aren't expecting. Exactly. And then there's an additional problem. Most of the troops, German or not, as I've said, are mercenaries. That means they expect to get paid. That's the core of being a mercenary is you get paid for being a soldier. But they're in this secondary theater. The main fighting is going on in Flanders. And so the Habsburg Emperor Charles V is focusing all of his attention on Flanders, so the money isn't coming through to Italy in the months leading up to this battle. There, the Habsburg armies in Italy are winning, the French are losing, but the money's not coming through and the army's getting more and more upset 
and they're also relying more and more on loot as their way to pay the soldiers, which creates this sort of cycle where they need to loot towns to pay the soldiers, but then the soldiers insist that they need to go out of their way to loot towns instead of doing other things, which maybe the emperor and the duke would prefer that their army be doing. So this army is becoming even more mercenary than they already were, looting as they go to Rome, rather than focusing on the strict military objectives. Right. There's one last thing we should mention. The morning of the 6th of May, the Habsburg army has reached Rome. Charles, Duke of Bourbon, actually attempts to stop his men from assaulting the city because he wants to negotiate with the Pope. He can't do it. The men are demanding the chance to loot, and he can't pay them, and they're upset. And eventually, he's trying to channel this, control this. And in the first assault over the city walls, as the battle begins, he's leading his men. He's famously heroic. He's wearing a white cloak so that his troops can see him on the battlefield, see where he is, be rallied. And an Italian sniper on the walls sees this bright white cloak, which makes him an obvious target, and guns him down. So as the battle makes its way into the streets of Rome, as they breach the city walls, there's no one in overall command of this army. Nobody's in charge. So, David, it's time for our dramatic scene. Swell the music, dim the lights. Here come our 42 Swiss Guard making their last stand on the steps of the Vatican Basilica to protect the Pope against this leaderless, looting, unruly mob. By this point, the Swiss Guard as I've already mentioned, are decimated. They started out with 500. Now they're at 42. In just street fighting, they've been dying in ones and twos. But for a brief moment, the German and Spanish troops are there. They're visible in the square, but no one wants to rush this clearly organized and professional group of soldiers who are clearly not on their side because everyone's there to loot. So there's a critical handful of minutes, which gives enough time for the Pope to escape. He's getting into the secret passageway. But at roughly the same time, somebody comes through. No one knows who or why, but someone with just enough authority in the Habsburg army arrives and orders an attack. And there's actual fighting on the steps of the Vatican Basilica, and the Swiss guards, pushed back as they are, begin retreating into the secret passage, two at a time since it's so narrow that only two men can make their way through the passage at once. And individually, some of them make it through. But the captain of the Swiss guard at the time is wounded, can't make the run, and he closes the passage door. And by the time that the German, possibly Spanish, possibly Italian mercenary Habsburg troops break down the door and try and make their way through the secret passage to Castle Sant'Angelo, it's all been blocked off at the other end. They can't get through. And the Pope is safe for now. So the wounded Captain David sacrifices himself to close the door and give the guard enough time to escape with the Pope? 
Well, he doesn't actually sacrifice himself there. He's wounded, he closes the door, and then, briefly, he actually escapes. The The Habsburg troops have no reason to kill a random wounded man. They're not evil. And so he's actually taken to his home. According to his wife, who later writes this up, he's actually brought back by some of the Habsburg troops who are trying to be reasonable in the context of a battlefield and put into his home. And then a couple of hours later, a random party of out-of-control looters, who knows where they came from, who knows what they thought they were doing, come by, trash the home, light it on fire. He's too wounded to flee, and he burns to death. A tough ending, David, for the heroic captain of the guard who saved his men and the Pope himself by blocking off the passageway. How many Swiss guard survived the day, David, of the original 500 who started? So there's some dispute about total survivors. I picked the moment at the Basilica because the specific number 42 was available. The Pope writing up in letters later on gave that specific number so we can say 42 at that moment. Whether that refers to primarily the men who made it through the passageway or to the men who were on the steps of the Basilica who got cut down, we don't know that. So I can't give you a final number for survivors of the 6th of May. But a great loss nonetheless, David, for the Swiss Guard. And so what happens next? Is the Pope able to survive, to escape? Do they stay holed up in their castle separate from the rest of the city? What is the final result of this sacking of Rome, David? So the sack of Rome continues for weeks. There are troops on in Rome. No one is in control. The second in command of the Duke of Bourbon, a man named Philibert of Chalon, tries to assert control, but it takes him literal weeks of organizing and sending his own patrols through the city to find what are theoretically his troops and bring them back into camps to try and get them back under discipline before the sack in the city actually ends. So through all this time, the Pope himself is in Castel Sant'Angelo, which holds out primarily because the Habsburgs are more interested in either looting soft targets or fighting amongst themselves to reassert control and bring the army back under discipline. So there's an extended period there where the fighting is still going on in some level, but the Pope is still alive. But eventually, Philibert does manage to get his troops back under control and begins the process of negotiating with the Pope. Unlike his troops, who are Lutheran, he doesn't want to kill the Pope. That would be an absolute disaster for the Habsburgs to have all of their Catholic subjects here that the Habsburg emperor ordered the Pope killed. So he wants to negotiate a solution. Obviously, the Pope wants a negotiated solution. Eventually, on 6th June, a full month later, Clement VII formally surrenders, agrees to pay 400,000 ducats for his life, 
to surrender four towns on the border of the Papal States to the Habsburgs and to allow Venice, which has allied with the Habsburgs by this point, to also get a couple of towns from the Papal States. And the troops withdraw. The city of Rome is once again officially under Papal control, but the effects on the papacy and on Christianity will be much more long-lasting. So not a good ending, David, for the Pope and the Papal States, but at least he escaped with his life. So how does this last stand of the Swiss Guard and the results in Rome go on to impact history as we know it? Well, for one thing, this is going to shock you, but matters are somewhat tense between the Habsburgs and the Pope for as long as Clement VII is alive. He never gets over it, eh? I mean, on the one hand, in some ways they're better than usual in that he does what the Habsburgs ask of him a lot because the threats, but they're not close. They're not warm and friendly relations. Shocking, shocking. This matters because Martin Luther, who we've already mentioned, is preaching in Germany, becoming more popular, and creating this famous reformation in the Christian community. And this isn't the first time that there's been a radical popular preacher. A while back, quite a while back, we did a podcast about the Hussites, who were followers of Jan Hus, a Czech or Bohemian preacher who had many ideas which could be considered similar theologically to Martin Luther. But of course, they got crushed by a giant crusade of the Habsburgs and the Pope working together against what they viewed as heresy. That won't happen to Martin Luther and the Lutherans for as long as he's alive because the Pope and the Habsburgs are not working together. And that in turn leads us to the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Counter-Reformation, big matters of theology and how we think about God in our culture up until today are affected by this otherwise very obscure war of the League of Cognac in the 1520s between France and the Habsburg Empire that views at the time the strategists viewed the Italian theater as a sideshow and the Flanders theater as the real war. But now no one remembers the Flanders theater, but the sack of Rome is a defining event for a lot of religious thought. Interesting how the timing of these things can play out, David, and how something seemingly unrelated, a war between the Habsburgs and the Pope, can have a huge impact on a reformer in Germany and a new religion that springs up and continues to this very day. And if you did want to hear that podcast about the Hussites, David, and that other religion that didn't have quite the success that the Lutherans did, that was episode five, all the way back to episode five, The Blind General. So you can go back in our archives and find that episode and give it a listen. It is a rollicking story, just as this one was. David, thanks for telling us this story. I always enjoy it, Neil. If you enjoyed it, make sure you give us a like on social media and you can follow all of our new episodes as they come out. And if you go on our Instagram page, at WhenArtThou on Instagram, you will find along the top our story highlights. And one of them is for our pop culture quizzes. These are always fun, David. 
We like to examine the historical accuracy of things from pop culture. So I thought we'd do another one of those quizzes today, David, this time with the plays of Shakespeare. The plays of Shakespeare, pop culture, my first thought of what are the kids into these days? Shakespeare plays. Hit me with it. Exactly, David. We are on top of the latest trends in pop culture as we'll examine the historical accuracy of Shakespeare. In the intro at the beginning of this episode, we use the famous speech from Shakespeare's Henry V, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And that's from Shakespeare's depiction of the Battle of Agincourt, which of course he couldn't accurately portray because cavalry charges are hard to show on a theater's stage. But after the battle, Shakespeare's characters recount the number of dead from the battle, with the purported number being about 400 dead French soldiers for every dead Englishman. Fact or fiction? The English definitely won a crushing victory at Agincourt against much greater numbers with a very good uh, ratio, I suppose, of French lost to English lost. But I think that 400 sounds a little high to me. So I'm going to say fiction. I think Shakespeare was exaggerating there. Yeah, Shakespeare exaggerated by a bit here. The actual number is about 10 dead Frenchmen for every lost Englishman, which is still a staggering victory for the English, but uh, not quite 400 to 1. Julius Caesar was murdered in real life, as in Shakespeare's work, during the Ides of March. But Shakespeare adds a famous line from a soothsayer who warns Caesar, beware the Ides of March. Is this fact or fiction? Huh. So the Romans certainly did rely on portents and omens to inform them about daily life and the way the future would go. I really don't know if Julius Caesar had any specific ill omens before the Ides of March. I'm going to guess fiction again simply because it's such a great line that I always suspect that it's exaggerated. It is a great line, David. And as you mentioned, the Romans were very superstitious in a way that's hard to remember for modern ears. And we'll give Shakespeare credit here, David, because at least he was following the historical record. There are two Roman historians who document the warning to Caesar from the soothsayer. So Shakespeare is basing his work on the actual history here. But of course, these Roman historians were born over a century after Caesar's assassination. So it's somewhat dubious whether their works are accurate. In the Scottish play, it is Macduff who kills Macbeth. Spoiler alert. Do we need spoiler alerts for Shakespeare, David? I imagine our educated audience are familiar with all of Shakespeare's oeuvre, but anyway. Anyways, uh, it is Macduff who kills Macbeth in the play, fulfilling the witch's prophecy that Macbeth cannot be harmed by anyone of woman born, as Macduff was born by cesarean section. Fact or fiction? The killing part, not the cesarean section part. I don't know a lot about the very early period in Scottish history to which the historical Macbeth belongs. I also don't believe that Shakespeare knew a lot about that period, so I'm going to guess fiction. Good guess, David. In real life, Macbeth was defeated and killed by Malcolm with help from the English at the Battle of Lumphanen on August 15, 1057. In Henry VI, Part Two, David... Richard III, though not yet king, takes part in the First Battle of St. Albans. Fact or fiction? First Battle of St. Albans, the beginning of the War of the Roses. I don't know a lot about the War of the Roses. 
I'm going to guess that it's fact, simply because that's so much closer to Shakespeare's time period that I think he would be better able to know what actually happened. Well, Shakespeare was actually wrong on this one, David. He was playing around with time periods a bit because Richard III was just three years old in 1455 at the time of the First Battle of St. Albans. So he really couldn't have played the role that Shakespeare puts him in as a toddler. Much like Shakespeare's other star-crossed lovers, Mark Antony in Shakespeare's work commits suicide, thinking that his beloved Cleopatra is already dead, only to find out that she is not. Fact or fiction? Ah, the Roman Civil War, the end of the Roman Republic. But when Mark Antony committed suicide, did he believe that Cleopatra had also I'm going to guess fiction. This one appears to be fact, David, although as with many things that happened before the Common Era, it's a little hard to know the exact details, but it does appear that Antony killed himself thinking Cleopatra to be dead and may have even been taken to her as he was dying to die in her arms, just as he does in Shakespeare's play. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, yeah. And thanks for listening. <laughs>